I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage, which extrudes weekly from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and I'm joined by my friend and political scientist, Dr. Maria Taflaga. Hi, Maria. Hello. Great to have you here again, as, as usual. And this week we're going to look at a fascinating defamation action which has been launched by the most powerful media organisation in the world against one which is so small that few people will have heard of it. And to help us do that, we're joined by the Melbourne-based barrister and academic and president of the Australian Bar Association, Dr Matt Collins, AMQC, author of such definitive books as The Law of Defamation and the Internet and the modestly titled Collins on Defamation. Welcome to this leafy glade of the internet, Matt Collins. Thanks, Mark and Maria. It wasn't my idea, that modestly titled text, but it's following me around. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, to, to, to be fair to you, I actually stole that line from you. I, I remember you were using it. Uh, it's always better to get in first. Using it at a graduation ceremony. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, look, the case uh, that we're talking about that many people would by now be aware of is the one brought by Lachlan Murdoch against Crikey or against private media, which owns Crikey and against certain individuals. Lachlan Murdoch will claim in Australia's federal court that he has been defamed after Crikey's Bernard Keane, the website's political editor and a guest on here a couple of times in the past, described the Murdochs in a manner that was used uh, back during the Watergate uh, time uh, against President Richard Nixon. He was described by some as the unindicted co-conspirator in the Watergate break-in and assorted wrongdoings. Uh, Keen commenting on the role of Fox News primarily in promoting the big lie about the presidential election and in fomenting the January 6 um, uh, insurrection at the Capitol, uh, had described um, Murdoch's, the Murdochs as, um, and Fox News as, in similar terms, you know, the unindicted co-conspirators. Uh, um, so I guess let's, let's just get a sort of a sense of this, uh, Matt Collins. It's 
a, a huge case, uh, one of huge interest. There have been headlines all around the world about this, but it's really very asymmetric. Is that is that one of its key features? I mean, the, the hugeness of news corporation versus the tininess, if I can put it like that, of, of private media? It, it's a very unusual case, and I've been sort of scratching my head a bit about the um, tactics on both sides. So you know, you're right, it's asymmetric in the sense that ordinarily in big defamation case, the resources reside with the defendant, the big publishing house, and the allegation is that the media can afford to outspend a plaintiff. That's obviously not this case um, in that Crikey is a relative minnow in the Australian publishing scene and Lachlan Murdoch is a very big fish. But that's only one of the curious features of it. You know, you've also got um, the co-chair of News Corporation, one of the world's, perhaps the world's biggest publishing house, which for decades has argued in a principled manner that Australia's defamation laws are uh, too rigorous and too anti-publisher here taking advantage of those very same laws to sue for defamation and in circumstances where you know, there's almost I think it's perfectly clear that under the law of the United States, the case would almost certainly be doomed to fail. It wouldn't get past first base when measured against the American First Amendment. So I think yeah, there's, a, there's a lot to ponder in the strategy. And the other point, of course, is you had a crikey in effect, goading Lachlan Murdoch into suing. Now, that's a very high-stakes game for mm. any publisher to play, let alone a publisher who is um, who has less resources than the plaintiff. And I guess you touched on this too, but how, how common are media-on-media media defamation cases? Pretty rare. Mm. Um, I, mean, I can think of commercial cases in which the media takes each other on. For example, there was a stout a few years ago about the two major um, real estate services, realestate.com.au and domain.com.au, and there you had News Limited suing Fairfax, as it then was. But otherwise, it's pretty unusual because the media is usually, of course, its targets are usually public figures, business figures, sporting figures, celebrities, uh, Insofar as they attack each other, it's more in the nature of sniping than defamation. Maria, Kevin Rudd and, and Malcolm Turnbull have both tipped in some money. Uh, uh, Crikey's got a sort of a GoFundMe page uh, operating and people are joining in. Obviously, uh, News Corp and the Murdochs aren't, uh, aren't super popular on the left-hand side of the, the political spectrum at least. And uh, so lots of people have, have sort of decided to join uh, some I've heard that Crikey's subscriptions are up. Uh, Turnbull and Rudd have both tipped in $5,000 each. But given the wealth of these two gentlemen and the likely costs of this, uh, it's probably just symbolic, I assume. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, didn't um, Tom Uren offer to pay um, Bob Brown's legal fees, which amounted to significantly more and was uh, significantly less well off than than either of those um, two gentlemen. I, I mean, I do think this is a really um, Im- important kind of case. Um, I guess, like for, for you know, for political reasons, because it is just another, I guess, brick in the, the sort of wall around the fact that Australia's media market is one of the most concentrated in the democratic world and that, uh, you know, I guess there's a growing kind of recognition by political actors, albeit mostly from the left of politics, that it does have a really distortionary effect. And I guess the reason why, like, I mean, I would say that that for those political actors, they're often more concerned about the partisan dimensions of it, i.e., you know, it's unfair. But as citizens, like, we, we should be really concerned about these kinds of things because it does sort of shape 
what is in the realm of what is possible to be discussed. And, and that actually robs us of the ability to influence our political system and to really kind of test ideas, particularly at a time when we're all kind of searching for new solutions to new problems. Matt, you mentioned that Crikey had effectively goaded News Corp into this action. When, I mean, effectively is probably, that was my word, and it's probably understating it. I mean, it had actually goaded News Corp into this, uh, daring them to do it. Um, but before that, uh, there was a, a series of exchanges of letters, most of which have since been published, and there were offers by Crikey which were quite conciliatory and, and presumably they were without prejudice, but um, they they seemed to have Crikey acknowledging that uh, the Murdochs weren't personally involved, weren't directly involved in um, in the January 6 riots um, and offering to take down the original offending article in June um, and, to, and to remove tweets and so forth which was subsequently put back on. But does that prejudice Crikey's position, the, the sort of what, what to, to a layperson looks like an, a, an admission already of some level of um, liability? Well, it muddies the waters in a number of ways. It certainly makes it impossible, I think, for them in a practical sense to run a truth defence to the sort of relatively hyperbolic imputations that Lachlan Murdoch's lawyers have put upon the Crikey piece. But I think, you know, there's also the question, as you say, Mark, um, the article was originally published on the 29th of June after an early exchange of correspondence. About a week later, the article was pulled down. So had things stopped there, either one would assume the matter would have just gone away rather than escalating through correspondence, or if there was litigation, it would have been much more confined because it would have been about the damage done by an article on a niche Australian website when it was accessible for about a week. But what Crikey has done, of course, there's an escalation of the correspondence and then Crikey has reinstated the article, taken out or, or, or caused letters to be published in the New York Times and other places, which has now given this story a global dimension that it didn't have before. And so I think, you know, it, it's in a, in a sense it's ammunition to Lachlan Murdoch in the litigation to question, well, what are the motives underlying Crikey's conduct in this case? If the if they don't stand by the central matter of which Lachlan Murdoch is complaining and we're prepared to pull the article down, what justification is there in putting it back up? Uh, that'll be the arguments on um, Lachlan Murdoch's side. On Crikey's side, I suppose the argument is, well, th this was not going away. It was escalating through correspondence and their hand was forced into um, provoking Lachlan into bringing on the action. I must say I find that a mystifying aspect of the entire controversy because Australia's defamation laws are notoriously plaintiff-friendly. You know, no defendant should willingly uh, head into a defamation action. Uh, I often liken to it. It's like getting on a train where you don't know where the next stop is going to be. Hmm. And, I mean, Lachlan Murdoch is not specifically named in the Crikey story um, and, yet, right. and yet sort of steps forward as the injured party. It, it's, I guess there's a couple of interesting things there. I mean, News Corp clearly had, an, a, a, as you were just outlining in terms of that chronology, had an opportunity to let things stand at that point when 
private media, Crikey, had um, had you know taken the news story down, uh, taken the comment piece down, and um, and uh, you know things could have been left there. But News Corp wasn't happy with that, so has now proceeded to this has taken the bait, taken the the offer of um, uh, the suggestion of you know sue me, and and so that's what they are doing. So so that's an interesting aspect in itself. The other one is that notwithstanding the attention that, that that process brought, as you say, with some coverage in, in, in other places around the world, I wonder, I just wonder about whether the, the action itself is, is potentially likely to do far more damage to News Corp's reputation than anything that could have been published on Crikey ever would have, and whether a court looks at that. There's a phenomenon in the law known as the Streisand effect. You probably know this. There was an obscure Californian website that had photographs of coastal erosion along the Californian coastline and uh, one of the 12,000-odd photos of the the website happened to show Barbara Streisand's house. The photo had been seen by about six people, but Streisand sued for a breach of privacy. I think she wanted $10 million worth of damages, and the fact of suing drew so much more attention to the photograph that um, Mm. it was completely counterproductive. That's something we see a lot in defamation uh, cases, I'd have to say particularly in New South Wales, of plaintiffs suing ostensibly to vindicate their reputations but finding that the publicity attendant upon the case itself um, is counterproductive. You know, it, it can become an own goal. You can readily think of cases where plaintiffs have eked out a legal victory in the defamation courts, but their reputations have never recovered because more damage was done on the way through. What What interests me about that is that it's, it sounds to me like what you're saying is the court sort of s- sets stands aside from from that kind of logic train, uh, and uh, so you could have a situation where you technically win the case, but your reputation has been uh, traduced by the publicity associated with it and all the proceedings that have led up to the to the final outcome. But what I'm interested in is, does a could a court look at that and say, well, you can't be that you can't be that concerned about your reputation because if you were, you wouldn't be embarking on this action. Therefore, it goes to credulity, you know, your, your credibility as a as a, a plaintiff. Yeah, that, that's a non-lawyer's argument. Yeah, the I know. Lawyers <laughs> are, the, the, the lawyer's answer to that is that um, the defamation courtroom is the only venue we have in our system for the vindication of reputation through the legal system and that um, that is a, a, fe- a feature of suing in a defamation courtroom is that you can make it worse rather than better, but that's a consequence of exercising rights which are available to you. Yeah. Obviously, the other aspect of this in terms of that, you know, digging deeper into that that process and the laying bare of reputations and, and workings and so forth, I wonder, will, uh, assuming this actually makes it to court, will the, will the, um, the defence, uh, private media, crikey, um, be looking to um, establish. I mean, that, that presumably they'll be able to cite literally hundreds of examples, perhaps hundreds of hours of broadcasting by Fox News sort of right wing wingnuts. Um, you know, going on about the big lie, talking about corrupt electoral officials, the election having been stolen, and so forth. Um, is that going to? Do, do you think that's likely to be the way that um, uh, uh, the um, the defence tries to argue this, at least, you know, to, to, to establish that there is that causal relationship between uh, what Fox did and the Jan 6 riots. 
you can't prove the truth of something by pointing to other media reports. And actually, there's, a, there's an oddity about defamation law. Remember that our defamation laws in this country sort of you know, date back to the Middle Ages and haven't really haven't had a principled reformulation in centuries, but there is an odd principle in defamation law, which is to the effect that you can't refer in mitigation of your damage to what others have said about the, about the plaintiff, even if it's to the same effect or worse, unless the plaintiff has in fact sued in respect of those other publications. So we're here, Lachlan Murdoch has singled out private media, this crikey article, and um, at least so far as we know, hasn't sued or complained in respect of anything else. The court will look at that in isolation on the question of damages as if it's the only thing that's been said uh, in the universe uh, about um, this alleged connection between Lachlan Murdoch and, um, and, and January the 6th. Um, however, that said, I think the case will likely turn upon, at least in part, one of the new defences to defamation law in Australia, which began operation in the middle of uh, 2021, which is designed to protect um, publications where the publisher reasonably believes that the publication is in the public interest. And I think on that question, it'll be open to private media to say, well, this plainly was a matter of public interest. Look at the extent to which it was the subject of media scrutiny um, in Australia, in the United States, indeed, right around the world. So one other interesting feature of it, I think, is this, that another new feature of Australian law is that um, uh, plaintiffs can no longer sue for defamation unless a publication has caused damage to their reputation or is likely to cause damage to their reputation. I think that's a really interesting question where you've got a very prominent public figure with a global reputation like uh, Rupert Murdoch. We saw recently, people might remember the uh, defamation stout in the courts of New South Wales between Clive Palmer and Mark McGowan, where the judge was very dismissive of both parties and said, well, they've really got baked on reputations and nothing is really going to be affected by slurs that they sling uh, at each other. I suspect there'll be a similar sort of argument put here that you know most people would have a baked on view about the Murdochs and perhaps Lachlan Murdoch and that uh, something appearing on a niche Australian website was unlikely to shift the dial very far. So I suspect that'll be another um, string in Crikey's bow. Yeah, you would think that um, the, the the ravings of people on uh, Fox News, for example, will have been doing whatever damage it was that has been effectively, you know, that has been codified or put into words by Crikey on this instance. But, I mean, every 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 time you turn on Fox News, you can see people going on about the big lie and and uh, the election having been stolen and all that sort of stuff. And, I mean, th- that that is the reputation that Murdoch has as a result of his own broadcasting, um, someone merely pointing it out. Um, one wonders whether that could have uh, any serious implications for his for his standing. You, put, you pointed, Mark, to the fact too that um, Lachlan Murdoch is not in fact named in the crikey piece and this is not, this another interesting feature of it. You know, the, head, the headline uses the word Murdoch singular. It says you know, Trump is a confirmed unhinged traitor and Murdoch is his unindicted co-conspirator. Now, I suspect most people when they hear that don't think of Lachlan, they think of Lachlan's father. Um, so that's an aspect that Lachlan will have to grapple with. And then the, the final sentence, which is really the heart of the dispute, then uses the word Murdoch plural. The Murdochs and their slew of poisonous Fox News commentators are the unindicted co-conspirators of this continuing crisis. You know, but, but for that pluralisation of the surname, Crikey might have had better arguments. 
Uh, but e- even then, Lachlan will have to persuade a court that this was a sufficient pointer, this article was sufficiently pointing to him personally rather than to News Corporation or Fox News or his father. Yes, I must say, when I first read it, I assumed it was about Rupert Murdoch. I think most people would have. I think that's that's natural, notwithstanding that um, uh, Lachlan is co-chair of News Corp and uh, is the uh, chair and CEO of Fox News. But, um, yeah, I certainly thought of Rupert. Let's take a very quick break and be back in just a moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about, obviously, this this amazing defamation case, which seems to be unfolding. Um, Matt Collins, how much emphasis or, or interest will the court take in the actual words? Uh, you mentioned them just before the break, but I'm particularly interested in these two words, unindicted co-conspirators. Um, is... I mean, the unindicted part, in a sense, is uncontroversial because it, it, if it was just alone, it would be a, a statement of fact. Um, co-conspirators, unindicted, co- does unindicted dethorn co-conspirators in some way, uh, or does will the court look at that in a very literal sense, or will it look at it in in the sense of having been a piece of political rhetoric or journalistic rhetoric? Well, they'll be the arguments that will be put on Crikey's part that this was essentially a rhetorical flourish. And I, I suspect they'll say it's not just unindicted co-conspirators. Bernard Keane's words were unindicted co-conspirators of this continuing crisis, which begs the question, what's the crisis? Now, Crikey will say, I assume, well, that can't be a reference to January the 6th because January the 6th came and went on January the 6th. The continuing crisis is something else, presumably the parlous state of American democracy. And so I expect Crikey will say, therefore, that many of the imputations, the the stings of the Bernard Keane piece, which have been sued on, um, you know, ingeniously formulated by Lachlan Murdoch's team, are hyperbolic and not in fact conveyed. But to, to come back to your, 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 your question at the outset, the, the way the court looks at it is quite an artificial one. Um, you ask, what does the ordinary reasonable person understand by the publication? And even when we have jury trials where you might think, well, the jury is a proxy for ordinary reasonable people, juries are actually instructed, no, no, you must apply the test of the ordinary reasonable person in the hypothetical. And this leads to what's called the third man effect in defamation law. So take take an example well removed from this case. Um, Someone's accused of being being, uh, gay. 
And now for most people in modern Australia, that's a matter of utter indifference. And But what we, the third man effect involves members of the jury saying, well, of course I don't think less of someone because they're gay, but I'm required to apply the standard of the ordinary reasonable person. And I think ordinary reasonable people are much less uh, progressive than I am, and therefore I think it's defamatory. And we'll see the same phenomenon here. So the court has to the judge in this case, because we're in the federal court, no jury. The judge has to put aside legal learning, put aside the mindset of a judge, and imagine him or herself in the mindset of the ordinary reasonable Australian with all of their characteristics. And what the, the academic literature tends to suggest is that, if anything, judges underestimate the average intelligence of the, Australia, the average Australian. They assume that they are reading things much more literally than they are intended. That's interesting, isn't it, Maria? I mean, uh, that's, that sounds like the Fox News business model as well, underestimating the <laughs> intelligence of their uh, of their uh, viewers. But, um, uh, but perhaps they don't because there's certainly plenty of people who subscribe to the interpretation of, of what went on on January 6th and, and, and so forth. So, I mean, the politics of this are really quite fascinating, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, effectively to sort of reiterate the point, right, like it it does sort of sort of beg a belief that this has actually been brought brought before the courts because if anything, it seems to only, uh, I guess, highlight a problem that has has already been kind of raised with that petition, which was signed by tens of thousands of Australians to have a royal commission uh, into um, the Murdochs. But I guess, Matt, one of the things I would kind of like to know is, um, like, I do recall that there was moves to look at some of the way we crafted dem- uh, defamation laws in this country. Where did that actually land? And, you know, were, was those inquiries going in the right direction? Well, on defamation law, I'll give, give you a very quick history lesson. So, um, you know, defamation laws in the English common law tradition sort of emerged in the Star Chamber and in the ecclesiastical courts of England back in the Middle Ages. Um, When um, Europeans arrived in Australia, we imported the English common law, but we immediately proceeded to make it worse by tinkering with it in different ways in different states and territories. And we then had eight separate defamation laws in Australia, so one for each state and territory, right through until 2005, 2005, we reached uniformity of Australia's defamation laws, but in the classic Australian way, the uniform laws which were passed ended up being a compromise, particularly between the demands of um, people in Sydney uh, on the one hand and people in Melbourne on the other. Not only that, but the laws that were passed in 2005, 2005 was uh, two years before the first iPhone came out. So these are laws which essentially predate the internet era. So we had laws which were badly drafted and a compromise and which predated the internet era. As of the middle of last year, we've had a raft of reforms which are intended to liberalise the law largely and to rebalance the the, the scales as between uh, uh, reputation and freedom of speech in favour of freedom of speech. But time will tell whether they, in fact, have that effect because it's one thing to pass a law, it's another thing to see it tested in the uh, heat of battle in the defamation courtroom and to see them interpreted by, uh, by, by judges who have grown up in a tradition of very plaintiff-friendly laws. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating, actually. Yeah, it's an amazing um, sort of uh, trajectory uh, and we are now in that uh, uncharted space, as you say, where we're going to find out how this public interest reporting 
test applies or how, how it applies in this case, whether it actually holds up as a as a defence. I also say, Mark, one of the really interesting things about defamation law, unlike many other areas of law, is that you can have a case where both sides have got real, really weighty values uh, in their corner. So in any serious case, the defamation plaintiff has a genuine grievance. You know, something's been written or published about them which has damaged their reputation. Now, ordinarily, that would be enough to entitle them to compensation. But in defamation law, you're supposed to weigh against that the free speech value of what has been published or broadcast. And so but then, and, you know, the pointy end is when you have investigative journalism, take uh, the Ben Robert Smith case, which is really the, you know, the pointy end of investigative journalism, which has clearly uh, damaged Ben Robert Smith's reputation. Um, uh, uh, and and, and it, it, the, 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 ultimately, you're arguing for a defendant in a defamation case. You're really trying to persuade a judge or a jury that a worthy plaintiff whose reputation has undoubtedly been damaged should nonetheless be deprived of remedy because there's something inherent in the quality of the speech that ought to lead to that conclusion. And in that case, the Ben Robert Smith's case, uh, Smith case, and 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 numerous others, but uh, certainly in that one because it's you know been been front of mind recently. Uh, the the defence uh, against the defamation action is truth, right? I mean, yes. it's an attempt to establish uh, reasonable conclusions being drawn on the basis of what could be uncovered by that investigative reporting. Presumably, that will. Um, that you, you said at the start that the truth defence becomes compromised by perhaps uh, you know previous um, concession by private media to withdraw the story and so forth, make a statement about who was who was uh, who was involved and who wasn't. Um, but that notwithstanding, presumably uh, if it goes as far as court, the defence will be looking to establish um, a causal link between. What Lachlan Murdoch, or what is said on Fox News, and how that actually influenced the January six rioters, and um, and and the internal workings of Fox News, whether he, whether the Murdochs or Lachlan Murdoch in particular has editorial influence or even editorial control. Well, that is. Do do you imagine that is likely to be a way in which uh, the defence moves? Look, it's very early days. If as my, my suspicion is that the central defence will be the new defence in Australian defamation law, which is about, about whether a publisher's conduct, uh, whether the publisher reasonably believed that that publication was in the public interest. Now, that defence really requires a focus upon the state of mind of the publisher rather than the state of mind of the plaintiff. But it does import both objective and subjective elements. So on the assumption that that defence is run, Crikey would need to establish subjectively that it believed this story was in the public interest and that objectively that conclusion was open. And it's on that last question that um, you know, the door may be cracked open for an investigation of, um, of, of the underlying facts. But a defamation court generally will be very reluctant to allow itself to be turned into some sort of roving royal commission on the perceived sins of the of News Corporation and the Murdochs, uh, and I think we're very astute to keep the um, boundaries of the uh, of the defences closely closely in mind. That said, though, I mean the very specific term in this case is co-conspirator, so it is about uh, the relationship. Uh, implicit in that is a, a conclusion about the relationship between the Murdochs and Donald Trump. Yes, and so was that a conclusion? that was objectively 
that, 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 that a reasonable publisher could objectively form and is it a conclusion that Bernard Keane and private media in fact formed? And to the extent that that, test, that, that question is tested, yes, you know, e- e- evidence of um, the involvement of the Fox News commentators and Lachlan Murdoch as co-chair of News Corporation uh, in and around this period may well be open to some scrutiny. And the number but, of but, meetings... But, but it won't be a Royal Commission. It won't be a Royal Commission into the Murdochs. Anyone who is hoping or thinking it'll be that, I think, will be disappointed. Yeah, okay. Well, it's a fair point. But, I mean, I would have thought the number of meetings, phone calls, contacts between Rudy Giuliani and the Murdochs or directly between Donald Trump and Rupert or Lachlan um, in that period, uh, that, that would be something that uh, Crikey would say uh, informed... Uh, its understanding of the relationship that you know that is material here that goes to that question of being a co-conspirator of being uh, somehow involved in uh, in in the in the behavior of Fox News and the material outcomes of that which was a whole bunch of you know heavily armed men basically besieging the Capitol on January 6. I think that that's right to the extent that it involves an inquiry into what Crikey knew at the time of the publication right. it's been sued over. But I, I think it's highly unlikely, uh, at least in the absence of a, of a truth defence, that a court would would allow um, Crikey to trawl over and seek to try to find additional evidence that might support the view it says it held at the time. Of this uh, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. Yeah, that sort of sort of ex post facto stuff that uh, rather than uh, what what they knew at the time and what, yes. what was reasonable to conclude from what they uh, knew or could uncover at the time. So, what do you think the implications of this case might be, Matt? Like, is this just sort of sensationalism and, and something sort of? Of interest, or do you think it might actually have long-term consequences? Look, we've we've seen in Australia over the last, particularly the the last decade, a bit under a decade, you know, a spate of you know very high-profile, enormously expensive defamation cases, you know, some of which you know, Mark and I have been involved in. Um, this is certainly the next in that chain of cases. To me, the the, the interesting features of it are not not really the legal features. They are the political and background features. So the identity of the plaintiff is very interesting. Uh, And to to what extent will that affect News Corporation's ability to maintain the argument that Australia's defamation laws need reform in favour of freedom of the press? Um, the, The potential impact on Crikey is very interesting because if this case runs the distance, it will be hugely expensive, a huge distraction for a small publishing house and it's not beyond the realms of possibility that it puts its viability at risk. It is the first case, significant case, to test the new defamation laws that commenced in the middle of last year and there I think there are at least two interesting features of it. The first is this question of serious harm. Can Lachlan Murdoch persuade a court that his reputation has suffered or is likely to suffer serious harm? Um, that'll be an interesting question. And I think the question of this new defence, you know, is, is, is this an example of journalism which is defensible because the publisher reasonably believed it was in the public interest? Now, we all thought as these laws were being passed that that was a defence that was about investigative journalism, you know, public interest journalism. Bernard Keane's piece, you know, great respect to him, is not that. This is essentially an opinion essentially an opinion piece. So to see whether 
these new supposedly liberal defences for the benefit of publishers are capable of operating in this context may be an interesting feature. Yeah, it's really fascinating because uh, you, you make a very good point about the, the nature of the piece that Bernard Keane wrote, but it's interesting, uh, and that sort of leads to my next question, it's inter- interesting that a number of the assertions that he made in that piece are pretty much standard fare for discourse in the US, um, which brings me to another interesting aspect of this case, which is that... Um, it's being uh, litigated in the Australian legal system and the Australian federal court, assuming it makes it to there. Um, yet all of the critical facts essentially uh, around it are about the US. The subject of the column was about the US. Um, the subject of a lot of the defence will be based in the US. The, uh, the the corporation involved is headquartered there. Um and I wonder, is that an interesting, you know, that's pretty unique, isn't it? I can't think of a, of a well, similar case. Well, no, it's, it's not entirely unique and it's actually pretty well-trodden ground. So if you think back to the turn of the century, uh, Joe Gutnick, the Australian um, you know, business figure, uh, sued Dow Jones in respect of a publication in a business magazine that was overwhelmingly published in the United States. Right. I think the evidence, I might have these figures slightly wrong, but I think there was something like 14 copies of the magazine in question sold in Victoria. But Gutnick sued in Victoria and he was allowed to do so because he was an Australian and he was concerned to protect his reputation in his home country. Well, the same features will apply here, but even with more force, because not only is Lachlan Murdoch an Australian, albeit you know, one, one who, who, who is, a, is a global citizen, but also Crikey is an Australian publishing house. So there's mm. nothing illegitimate about the case being conducted in Australia under Australian law. Lachlan Murdoch is entitled to have access to the courts of this country and this is the logical place for a dispute between an Australian plaintiff and an Australian publisher. But it is right to say that, and I alluded to this before, um, the First Amendment to the American Constitution would have the effect, I think, that this case, if it were to be litigated there, just wouldn't get past first base. So in, in the United States, public figures, and Lachlan Murdoch is certainly one of those, cannot sue for defamation unless they can establish to a convincing standard that there's been actual malice involved in the publication. Mm. And American law generally excludes um, cases against public figures where what is an issue is essentially an opinion. And I think for uh, under American law, Bernard Keane's piece would probably be categorised or the, the the part of it that Lachlan Murdoch is concerned about would probably be characterised as an opinion. The, the distinction between fact and opinion is drawn quite differently in Australian courts and there'll be a live question here about whether the sentence, uh, the Murdochs and their slew of poisonous Fox News commentators are the unindicted co-conspirators of this continuing crisis, whether that is properly characterised as a fact or an opinion. Yeah, no, that's that's quite fascinating. I suppose what I was really thinking about, though, was um, the extent to which that public interest journalism defence um, will have to rely on what was essentially known and understood about the events leading up to January six and the behaviour of of Fox News uh, in that in that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and that, we, that, that right, these are it? these are essentially American details. Yeah, and, and, and at the level of media analysis, of course, it, it must be uh, – Americans presumably would find it quite fascinating that there'll be a case in Australia trawling over um, the uh, inner workings of um, broadcasts in the United States going to uh, a seminal event in the recent political history of that country. Yes, it's going to be fascinating to see the way it plays out. Do you think this is uh, – just as a final question um, – 
you know, I've certainly known this and you will have as well, Matt, many times, uh, the attitude of large media organisations to simply use their, their financial resources, their heft to intimidate the other party out of, out of the, the ring. Um, is there a sense that that's what News Corp is doing here? It's just going to use its, uh, I mean, it, it can obviously absorb these costs and, uh, and, and manage this no matter which way it goes, but it's a, it, it presents an existential crisis for a, for a tiny publisher like private media. Um, is, could that be the motive here just to sort of simply crush this annoying minnow? Uh, I wouldn't want to speculate about the motive other than to observe that, um, you know, it, it would be a very strange reaction on the – so if that were right, it's a very strange reaction on the part of Crikey to have provoked the yes. lawsuit. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, all right, well, look, I think we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much, Matt, for coming on. It's been really terrific to have your uh, outstanding understanding of, of these matters and we're going to watch this case with, uh, with great interest, as I'm sure you are and many other people are and people, as you say, not just in this country. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Thanks, Maria, for your comments. Oh, well, yes, I learnt a lot. Thank you very much, Matt. And we will be back with Democracy Sausage next week. Until then, bye for now.